That was Blue Curve of the Earth, composed by Tina Davidson and commissioned and performed by Hilary Hahn and Corey Smythe. Welcome to Relevant Tones. I'm Stephen Anthony Rawson. On today's episode, we are featuring my conversation with composer Tina Davidson, whose memoir, Let Your Heart Be Broken, Life and Music from a Classical Composer, was published earlier this year. Tina's extraordinary lyrical voice and sense of vulnerability in her music is equally present in her writing. 
The memoir weaves together stories of her life and art that are full of joy and pain and poignant insights. We cover a lot of ground, so let's dive right into our conversation. I don't know if I have a particular order in which I'd like to discuss everything. I think I did initially, and then I read excerpts of your memoir, and then I thought maybe chronological might not be the best way to talk about things. Maybe we'll just jump around a little bit, but... I think so, yeah. That's great. Would you be okay to start by talking about your memoir a bit? Yeah, so I am Tina Davidson, of course, and I have been a composer for the last 45 years. I've written for major orchestras, uh, the Kronos Quartet, the Cassatt Quartet, and most recently for Hilary Hahn. I was part of her encore project, and she actually recorded that piece twice. She recorded it for the album on Deutscher Gramophone, and then she produced a live version, so that was very cool. And then this year, I released a memoir called Let Your Heart Be Broken, Life and Music from a Classical Composer. Yeah, there are all sorts of ways to talk about my music and get into the artistic process. You mentioned quite a few pieces in your memoir, uh, the process of writing them, wonderful anecdotes about them, and we get a real insight into the, not just process, but your life and how you're feeling. They're your journal entries, which is, is, was wonderful to hear. The book is about my life story, but it's, and those are in chapters, like little short stories, you know, my birth and and it goes through and there are maybe 12 of those chapters or 14. And the alternate chapters are as an adult, um, they're actually journal entries. They are from my journals, uh, which I was uh, very committed to writing because I've always felt that to be a really authentic composer, I had to know myself. If I'm going to truly heave my heart into my mouth, I better know what I'm doing, or I better have some clarity about that. So writing journals was always that process. So then there is the alternate chapters are journal entries from a specific years. And there, those are in chronological 10 years as an adult. And so Sometimes it's looking back on my childhood. Sometimes it's about writing music about my childhood. Um, And sometimes it's just about the composing process. And so I think as you read the book, towards the end, those two things start to merge a little bit more and we get more of one voice. Maybe we could start with Fire on the Mountain, perhaps. So Fire on the Mountain, that came, that's probably a little bit, past the midway section of the book and I had a dream that I uh, there was this beautiful white horse lying on a couch outside and I'm trying to take a picture of it and I, I can't it's so big I can't get it in the viewfinder so I realize I have to step back and then as I get it in my viewfinder I actually look up and I see there's this beautiful fire on the mountain maybe it's sun maybe it's real fire And I realized in that dream that I was in the process of meeting a a man who I fell in love with. And I realized I always stand too close. I always, and I can't see the whole picture. So then Fire on the Mountain really became about that journey of 
love and standing too close and trying to get distance from it. And it's written for vibraphone and marimba. I worked with two members of the Philadelphia Orchestra. And it actually starts out where they're playing it with their fingers. Because I wanted to get, you know, kind of really close to the sound. Like, how could you touch it on a marimba? And they were they were worried because they were worried that the grease on their fingers would hurt the keys, which I thought was very interesting. And then they switch to the back of their sticks, to the stick end of their, of their mallets, and then they eventually go to mallets. And the piano is actually using a lot of muted tones. And at that point, that was something that I did a lot of. I was really trying to find, like, where does sound begin? Where where do you actually, you know, it's kind of whispering at you, you know, and, and, and then how is it kind of formed? So at that point, I was really interested in that generation of that kind of sound. And um, it gets quite turbulent in the middle, very rhythmic, very percussive. And I was also working on, you know, there's always this um, emotional start part of composing music. And then there's this sort of technical, sort of intellectual. And I don't think you really have a good piece unless you can combine both of them. You know, you really need your heart, your stomach, your head, you know, that all has to be. So how the music progresses through rhythms, where it arrives in a section, and then how you make that transition out of the section, all those kinds of points really need to be, in my mind, really tended to and carefully thought about. It's not like you're going, oh, and then I'm going to do a seven chord, and then I'm going to go. To... It's not, it's much more intuitive than that. But it is definitely using the logic part or the scientific or I hesitate to say mathematical, but that real thinking of how it progresses. So when you tell a story, you have a beginning, middle and end. Music is just like that. And the listener wants some sort of ending that maybe brings the piece together or asks a question or um, maybe even leads you off a cliff. That would be okay too, but it it has to be some sort of resolution. You know, whether you're falling off a cliff or not, that's still a resolution. <laughs> Thank you. 
You hit, hit on many points I wanted to ask about, starting with the fingertips and moving mm-hmm. to the backs of the sticks. There's this um, this crackling at the beginning of the piece, and it, it's unfolding. And like you were saying with with story, your your pieces have this tendency to just unfurl. Just they, and, mm-hmm. and I I'm trying to remember exactly how you phrase it in your memoir. Bump into places that are comfortable and yes, yes. <laughs> uh, yes so that the listener goes with me on this journey where you you find yourself at the end and then suddenly realize it's also a beginning and you're surprised, but somehow it's right. You don't question like, oh, well, you lost me there. You you go, wow, I didn't expect this. This, this is, this feels, you know, there is a kind of an intuitive body feel like, oh, that's okay. I'm yeah, let's go on. I think it's spot on too. And I think what's, what sometimes, what was surprising to me is listening to an ex, like a work that's 17 minutes long and it not feeling feeling like 17 minutes it you know it's it 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 feels it can feel much faster or slower time the my perception of time everything yes. the flow of things being so smooth you know it, it, it's easy to get the impression that it is coming very effortlessly you know from your hands to the paper and, yes, and you didn't see the tears and yes. and the weeping. Yes, we don't we don't see it, but you can feel it. You can still you can still access it through the music, which is there. But it, it there's this wonderful lyricism and flow to to so much of your writing. And I think my goal as a composer is if I can communicate myself the best I can, the listener maybe won't get me as much as they get themselves. So I, I do think of it as a kind of collaborative process. I am revealing myself, but it's not like you go, oh, she's cool. It's like, oh, I got something for me. And I think when I listen to music or read a book, that's the most important thing. I understand something about myself at a deeper level. Or it resonates questions, or there's something that provokes me you know, entices my imagination forward. John Zorn would talk about this art as a prism, vorticism, uh, mm-hmm. and 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 trying to construct that prism so that uh, you could sh- multiple colors will will come out. The glass is clean, and, yes. and the viewer's appreciation will be uh, multifold. But all the composer is really generating is just the white light. Right, the and light. then the listener has his or her's own experience with that piece and I think to me that that is one of the most exciting parts about writing music and certainly with my book when people write to me and I am surprised that the book also reads a little bit like a thriller like I'll have people write me I I was up to four o'clock last night I couldn't put it down I'm like geez Louise get some sleep (laughs) but I think again that sense of storytelling where you end something and it provokes you. There's like a magnetism, like, oh. And I think, you know, notes have those kinds of properties themselves. Uh, It's one of the things that I teach my composing students is, I can't tell you what is magnetic for you. I would just propose to you to think about the notes or, or intervals or is having their own magnetism that maybe they want to go up maybe what they want to go down 
uh, sometimes you want to push against their natural tendencies. Sometimes you have no choice. You just have to go, okay, whatever, have your way. I mean, certainly I've written many pieces where I go, I don't want that ending. And so I'd erase it and it would like kind of magically reappear again. I'd say, okay, I guess. But that's the other thing I would always say to artists. There is nothing that precious in the work that you are creating that you can't let go of and learn from and move to another piece. And I think that's a, a very important thing to talk about as human beings and as artists, as creators. And let's face it, we all are creators, whether we're creating music or our own lives. But there is nothing that precious that you have created that you have to hold on and make perfect. The rug makers in Iran and Iraq, you know, the beautiful Oriental rugs, they'd, they'd place a mistake in there so that the gods wouldn't get too angry at them for trying to be perfect. And I love that kind of image as an artist. And it's coming to understand vulnerability, I think, as an artist is, yes. is another thing. And, and vulnerability is something that you, you do talk a lot about, opening yourself up to that. Yes. It's, yeah. I think you mentioned um, listening to a piece of work, hearing it back, and maybe not recognizing yourself in it, and coming to under trying to understand. Oh, oh you say it. I, I love how you say it. Is it uh, intermittent accuracy? Yes. Uh, that's yes. another way of knowing, which I I I just love. You know, even even right. looking at your own work, understanding. I I can't understand this completely. Right. So I was talking about my journal writing and my music that at the moment, it might be an accurate feeling. But when I leave that minute moment, it may no longer be accurate. So you might say, oh, my God, this poor woman, <laughs> what she's gone through. But actually, I've gone through those things. And and that was true for me, absolutely true for me, you know, broken up about a a relationship or, you know, whatever the moment is. And we have to remember that that's, that's just intermittent and it passes. Um, so don't think of me in some of my, you know, worst worlds <laughs> because, and also my music is the same. It, it And there is something amazing about the creative process that I, I don't want to make it you know, seem like high art, because that always feels like exclusion. Like if I say it's high art or really spiritual, well, I'm not including you. And and that's not accurate. But there is something where sometimes you speak things and you don't even realize what you're saying or the impact to you. And I've always felt that my music not only contained me in the moment, but it also was telling me where to go. So I always thought, oh, you know, I am my music. But actually, my music a lot of times taught me things, like it was an external force. Okay. And I think that's not high art. It's just willingness to listen. Oh, I know. I know we could we could talk for a very long time. Just even hearing you say that and hearing you talk about Pauline Oliveros quite a bit. In your, I know. I get that. Yeah, sorry. I, I feel the same because uh, finding her music at, at a certain time when I when I did in my life uh, profoundly changed my 
my view as a musician, as a as a person, and and how I thought about um, people, just people in my life and conversations. It just opened opened myself up to to listening. She's very very profound, and I worked with her quite a few times, and she was willing to create music that the performer was as much an active agent as she was. And she always thought of her music as creating community. She would create pieces where she would say, I want you to think of three different words. And one of them is, I'm, I'm gonna dumb her down, I, I apologize, like share, uh, fly, share. So that, that idea of that when you're playing these pieces, which were improvisatory, you would be thinking of flying so that your own solo flight, but then you would be always thinking of coming back into community and being in relationship. I think that was one of her words, you know, to play something that's in relationship to the other person. And that was uh, particularly for the time period where uh, the university composers were really trying to uh, craft every nuance in music and leave nothing to chance like John Cage although John didn't really leave things to chance because he did throw the coins so even when it was a chance he actually by 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 throwing you know the coins to choose whichever came out he was actually still controlling it in a funny way yeah she was a great philosopher and thinker and just such a generous musician and composer. You teach your youth composer classes. Yes. And there are some really wonderful stories in your memoir about that. Uh, students uh, having, getting them to create their own instruments, invent their own notation. And yes. the stories you, you share about connecting with these kids, they're really wonderful. I'm a teacher too, and I'm, I, found many connections to what you were saying and aha moments like it's nice to hear these can you talk a little bit about that program and about teaching I always feel that everybody should be a composer just the way you are in kindergarten and you enter the kindergarten room and you see an easel over in the corner and the teacher puts a smock on you and I always feel then she gives you your best creative lesson in the world and she says Try not to get the paints on the floor. And you go off and it's all yours. You know, it's just you and the paints. So I've been really interested in creating programs where I give kids that ability. And I did a lot of teaching in public schools in Philadelphia that were very poor. They had no music departments. They had no instruments. So I said, okay, what, do you, what should we create? instruments with and what do you have at home junk you have junk so um they brought in boxes and you know anything i wouldn't allow glass because that would break um and i did find in really poor neighborhoods they don't have a lot of access to uh, leftover wood because nobody's really repairing houses you know a shoebox could become a guitar very simple and I never teach where I give them instructions. We just sort of throw this stuff on the floor. And I said, yeah, go ahead, <laughs> go ahead. Because what I always want to teach people is creativity belongs to you. It doesn't belong to anybody else. 
Maybe some people have more, or maybe some people have just more interest in it, but it is an inalienable right. And, you know, I grew up where people would say, oh, don't sing loud because your voice sounds awful, you know, and I think people get those messages. You're not creative. Oh, you'd be really great at science. So, and then we make instruments and then I try to teach composition in the least complicated fashion, which is you draw the sound. And then after you draw the sound, you, you on big paper, you, the paper is reduced and you have to think about how do you make high and low and how do you create duration? And then how do you create specific notes? Uh, do you create your own symbols? Oh, so, and then we always perform because that's the way you get the most appreciation for your creativity. And it's music is wonderful. I perform, you clap. That's what you do. When you do art, it's I create the piece and it's up on the wall, but you don't clap. Mm -hmm. And I think for children, it's really important for them to get acknowledgement. It's really great that they get to work with like the Cassatt Quartet. And yeah. That, that story about the, about the, I believe it was a boy who wanted his piece, wanted to work with the cellist. But right. Well, and that you can do really sophisticated projects yeah. where these were fifth graders from a poor inner city school. And we were doing James Joyce Ulysses. <laughs> they had seen a show about James Joyce Ulysses and how it was like Ulysses. And so all these artists were brought into school systems. I was one of the composers, but there were uh, art, art and, you know, ceramicists and all sorts of. And we were supposed to help them create their own work about Ulysses. And so, yeah. Uh, so I just would tell them stories, you know, the one-eyed Cyclops and, you know, so I was just amazed at how you can present a very complicated project, but it's actually for them very simple.
maybe I can turn to talking about another piece. Can I ask about Cassandra Sings? Yes. Um, this is another piece that just as a connection, it, it's about mythology and it's about Aeschylus's Agamemnon, the, the character yes. of Cassandra. Could you tell me a little bit about, this is also commissioned by the Kronos Quartet. Um, could you tell me a little bit so about So let me tell you how I got that commission, because I think that's an important lesson. I sent them a cassette tape of a piece for multiple saxophones and they happened to listen to it. So occasionally when you do a cold call, you know, I think it's really good to put things out there and sort of like, you know, if you believe in any kind of witchcraft, it's important that when you put something good out there, once it's out there, you don't think about it. That kind of will jinx it. So you just put stuff out there, you know, uh, contact people. And so they had commissioned this work. And my daughter was young and her name is Cassandra. And I wanted to write, I did, I read the play and um, I was fascinated that the Greek chorus always sings their lines in a Greek play because they speak the truth. And Cassandra is the only character in any Greek play who sings, supposedly sings because she spoke the truth. And it's such a wonderful metaphor for women. She spoke the truth, but nobody would believe her. She was part of Troy and she told the king and everybody, you know, this is not a good war. This is going, you are going to be devastated by this. And they said, oh, women, <laughs> what do they know? But it's such, you know, as we go into certainly that time, which was the late 80s, and even now, when we speak the truth and we're ignored, like about climate change, it's still such an important thing for us to think about. Um, so the piece is called Cassandra Sings. And I had all these little fantasies about this young woman who really was giving herself over to the gods. So she was a priestess and um, you have to be virgin. And the reason she got this curse is that Apollo came to her and kind of said, oh, you're kind of cute. Can we go, you know, have an affair? And she said, no, I'm a priestess. And so he cursed her. And again, that's, that is a wonderful image of when you want to be your authentic self and other people don't want it around you. That is kind of a curse that you have to hold. So yeah, that's what I was writing about. And um, there was a lot of pressure. It was scary. Um, they released all their performances before I'd really even gotten into the piece. So I knew it was going to be premiered at Alice Tully Hall, Lincoln Center. And so I had to do a lot of meditation. Yes. It was yeah, a, a scary, a scary commission. Do you share the story about the dress rehearsal at the Walker Arts Center? I'm from Minneapolis, by the way, so I... I wonderful premieres at the at the walker what an institution um what an amazing yes you uh you share the story about the dress rehearsal of the last two notes of the dress rehearsal could you tell me a little bit about uh, what happened so i had gone out a week before to rehearse with a quartet and the, their re uh rehearsing method was to literally inch through there were four dress uh, four rehearsals and every rehearsal they would inch through the piece. I mean, inch. So even by the end of the four days, I hadn't even heard it at that point. And I thought, oh my God, I'm going to die. <laughs> just like I, 
So I went away. There were no, actually, I must have heard it because there were some revisions I did. I take that back. Uh, but the rehearsal process was brutal. And then I flew back a week later or two weeks later. I guess I had made those changes. And um, they sat there at, on the concert hall at, for the dress rehearsal and they performed it impeccably. And when they got to the last two notes, it's, a, it's a, I think a minor third. And then they echoed that minor third down below. And so they played the minor third and then they had a minor second. And I'm like going, I started to laugh. I, I said, you played this difficult piece beautifully. What's going on? And David Harrington said, well, we just thought that was too optimistic. And so, you know, I said, okay, tell me what you got. And they had like three or four different versions and none of them felt right. And finally, Hank Dutt said, well, maybe we should just play it the way it and I said, yeah, that would be great. And then after the performance, when I came up on stage, David Harrington, who's very tall and thin, he just kind of leaned over to me and he said, I withdraw the argument. <laughs> People have heard that story and have been horrified. Um, I was never horrified. I consider composing a collaborative process. I thought they had a legitimate point of view and they wanted to see if there was any alternatives. I was sure that that was the right ending, but I also wanted them to come to it themselves. I didn't want to say, wait a minute, you don't tell me what notes to write. And I think that moment taught me so much about listening and involving my performers. So I have to make them get it as well and invest in it. And a lot of times I was up at a festival, uh, I guess last summer, and they were struggling, you know, it was a premiere of a piece. And finally I said, oh, this this is good. Like, oh, well, I, look, now you forget the notes. Play wrong notes, who cares? Just play the music. And I'm also now really interested in being out of tune with somebody who's in tune. So they, I said, you know, you, you know, I wish you were a little bit more out of tune. They go, oh my god. <laughs> or I'd say, I do a lot with grace notes and with glissandos, and I said, can you be a little freer with it? Maybe think folk, think Greek, think, you know. And they love that. They'd say, oh, you want like this? I go, I love it. So I think it's really important that composers allow the performers to invest in that kind of way. And I think that's what the Kronos Quartet was saying. And I really appreciated it. It never, never bothered me. But I was coming out of a time where, you know, the Milton Babbitts were, were controlling everything and holding kind of onto this power of being a composer. So nobody listens, but I have power because every single note is defined for you. And I think what Pauline talks about is much more generous, more fluid, allowing others to come to it. And I've had even conductors say, you know, I think we should cut a little bit of this. And I'll go, what an interesting idea. Let's try it. And sometimes they're right. Sometimes they're wrong. I spoke with the Spectral Quartet not too long ago out of Chicago about community and about four distinct personalities coming together to create a dynamic union together. 
So it's it's interesting to work with string quartets, especially as much as as you have, and where they are always having a dialogue together, and you're having a dialogue with them. Everybody on equal terms. A quartet has to wear your your piece like clothing, and in a way, when I am commissioned by a group, I sort of become groupies. Like for the quartet or the Kronos, you know, I went and heard them a lot. Because I wanted to know, you know, how do they work? You know, what's the sound they create? Like David Harrington is really super thin. He's got skinny little fingers. And I think he really likes pieces that fit, you know, that are kind of lean, don't have a lot of vibrato, where uh, the cellist at that time, you know, just was like, you know, everything comes out of her. And so I actually would give certain melodies to certain performers because of that so I always like that I just feel like I'm this fashion designer <laughs> I'm creating this beautiful thing but it has to fit them
let me ask a little bit about I Hear the Mermaid Singing. This is another piece that has uh, women in, in folklore. Can you tell me a little bit about this piece? You know, I've always loved the poem. I've heard the mermaid singing each to each. They do not sing for me. But again, it could it kind of came out of a dream. I woke up and I was thinking, I hear the mermaid singing in the present tense rather than I have heard. And I thought, yeah, I do hear the mermaids. And, and mermaids to me are really the unfettered sort of female self that is really in tune with the environment, the ocean, and that sort of dreamlike undulating. It's not the mermaids who lure men to their deaths or are little mermaids. <laughs> You know, or, or the Hans Christian Andersen, hurting yourself, hobbling yourself when you get on shore out of your element. Yes. But I was really interested in just sort of thinking about that part of all of us that becomes very in tune with where we really are, or our sort of natural habitat, whatever that is. That's what really encouraged me to write this piece, and that, that I've changed the verb. And of course, Elliot says they don't sing for me. I disagree with him. They probably do. He's, it's perhaps that he's not willing to listen. Is it true that they're not talking to me or is it just something in me that's keeping me from being available for that? It's very interesting that T.S. Eliot was, was where I, my mind first went hearing your piece and love song for J. Alfred Prufrock. That, right. And I think of the anger, the angst, the pain that that young proof rock is feeling yes. in, the, in that poem and that process of through the poem closing himself off to the world mm -hmm. not listening deciding I'm fed, mm -hmm. fed up I have too much pain I'm just fed up with listening right yeah I know something that you you talk about writing through pain growing through pain the book's title let your heart be mm -hmm. broken I had congestive heart failure for nine years and I had read a lot of Stephen Mitchell. He had worked with Kubler-Ross and he had written some wonderful books. Uh, he ministered to a lot of people who had chronic illnesses. And at that point I had a chronic illness and I was trying to figure out my way through that. So I went to this conference in, at the Open Center in New York City and I thought it was gonna be very intimate. And I came in there with a 3,000 people in the audience. And I thought, oh, I was so angry. I thought, I'm going to get nothing from this. And the first thing he says, he's, he's sitting on the stage and there's this sort of warm light on him and he's kind of playing with a microphone. And he says, you know, people ask me, what is the meaning of life? And honestly, I don't know, but maybe it's to let your heart be broken. And I didn't think that much of it at that point, but that kind of followed me what would it be like to stop resisting my illness or stop resisting my depression or my addictions you know we all have had our hearts broken i mean you're alive it's probably happened to you it's most unusual that it hasn't so what would happen if we stopped resisting it and allowed ourselves to be with it not to say oh i deserved it it's you know, my my part of life, not to make it somehow, you know, this story of aren't I amazing, but that is part of the human condition. And 
And I think to me, what he was suggesting is that if you allow, and which is very gentle, let your heart be broken, be with it. The image to me was instantly your heart like breaks like this big old Easter egg and it kind of rocks on the table and you're kind of horrified, but interested and you look inside and you go, oh, it's filled with this beautiful dirt, this rich dirt ready for new stuff to happen. So I'd always carried that image for a long time with me, particularly as I wrestled with some of my hot childhood stuff and certainly my heart condition and uh, a failed marriage. And I don't think that's the right way to describe it. I wouldn't say a failed marriage, but a marriage that that ended in divorce and being a single parent. That idea of being interested in asking good questions, coming forward and meeting it. Because boy, you can, I can, I've wasted a lot of time in resisting. And the parallels to my music, allowing myself to really like in Fire on the Mountain, really be in that relationship and write about it. The good, the bad, and the ugly.
I don't know why my, my mind goes here, but I think about the Meet the Composer work you did at the uh, YWCA. That was an amazing program. So the Meet the Composer had done several rounds of residencies with, with composers. The first two rounds was uh, in major orchestras and like Joan Towers, I think was at St. Louis, Louisville. And there, there were just well-known composers placed for three years and Meet the Composer wanted to create a dialogue between those composers and the orchestra and, and promote new music. And this was the last project that they did. And what they were interested in was connecting composers with communities. And so this was in the 90s. And I can't say that composers were really happy about it because <laughs> it would be much nicer to get grants just to sit at home and write music sure. than actually go out and do some of the legwork. But it was a, an enormous education for the composer community. And I was in the second round and I was the first round that actually was working with a social service organization. And then they had, a, they had 10 years of it. And so, you know, the next rounds had more composers who were doing socials. And the other composers in my year, there were two others. And one of them was John Luther Adams. And he was doing work in community up in Alaska. So I worked with the opera company. I worked with the symphony. And then I worked with the YWCA. And I think projects like that, you have to go to the organizers and you have to say, this is what I can do. What are your needs? How can I help you with your needs? And so I joined a parenting class at the shelter. And these were women who had lost their children through addictions or domestic abuse or homelessness or some sort of upheaval in their lives. And they were taking parenting classes because many of them had lost their children. They were very eager to learn good parenting skills so they could be reunited with their kids. And so we were developing operas of their lives. And basically, I taught them the way I taught my kids. You know, we were in a kitchen, there are pots and pans, we'll make a drum circle, let's do some meditation and think like, if there's an issue in your life, how would you create a song out of it? And so they would create these, you know, 15, 20 minute pieces that were presented at the end of the year. I, I didn't write about it, uh, but I had a humbling experience in the third year where I had worked with Zadia Ife. And this was mostly uh, African-American women, mostly. And they came to me and they said, we love the program, but we don't think you're the right composer for us. And I said, but I created this program. I was really taken aback. And then I realized when you have privilege, you can think of creating your own work. If you don't have privilege, maybe you want to appeal to a genre of music that maybe you don't write, but that you want to have represent you. And it just told me, you know, it, it was it was a difficult lesson for me to learn that I might have been the one to create the program, but I was not the person they needed. Tina, thank you so much for talking with me. It's such a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. That's our show. All my gratitude to Tina Davidson for taking the time to be with us. You can listen to more of Tina's music and read excerpts of her memoir at tinadavidson.com. I'm Stephen Anthony Rawson. Relevant Tones is a production of Access Contemporary Music, a nonprofit organization with the mission of bringing musical creativity to life every day. Find out more at acmusic.org. <laughs>